should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome. Happy Monday. It is the second day of May. I can't believe it. It's the fifth month of the year. 2016 is flying by. It's flying by and it's also, it's just been kind of a weird, weird year. And I say that because of the loss of some, you know, musical wizards, um, the loss of life. And obviously I'm referring to David Bowie, Prince, and then also just personally, just some things that are going on. I don't know if you're going through the same things, but if you think that 2016 is just a really yucky year so far you can you can let me know by heading to michellemeow.com our producer kenny is in studio and just so you know just to introduce him again kenny is my very young nephew (laughs) who's also very heterosexual so kenny i always like to check in with you time to time are you having a good time producing this program oh yeah definitely it's a very fun experience are you learning something yeah every day and how is 2016 been for you so far so good Uh, i had uh, i mean there's some ups and downs but okay and and last question are you voting for trump uh (laughs) that's not no you're not supposed to hesitate you're supposed to say heck no 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 well donald (laughs) trump was here in the bay area and it was crazy there was just massive protests they shut him down i mean i think he i think that was like the in, last time he's going to come to the Bay right? Area. In Oakland? Uh, no, this is uh, in a pretty conservative part of the Bay Area, I should say. It's Burlingame, <laughs> near, okay, near yeah. the airport. He was close enough to the airport that if he had to get on a plane <laughs> and head the oh. heck on out, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, he did just that. Well, anyway, I'm very glad to hear that you are are, are not going to vote for no, Trump? No, okay, no. good, good. Good boy, <laughs> good boy. All right, let's get the program started. Today's program is brought to you by... Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is the star, I should say, the subject of a groundbreaking documentary, The Pearl of Africa. She is Cleopatra Kambugu, and uh, Cleopatra is the, as, as I had mentioned, She's the subject of a documentary um, that follows her as a transgender girl and her partner, or her, boy- her boyfriend, Nelson. Cleopatra, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I should say, uh, I think you go by Cleo, right? Can we call you Cleo? Can we be uh, close friends and uh, shorten our names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> um, so I mentioned, you know, this documentary, The Pearl of Africa, and I call it groundbreaking because it follows your transition and, and just your life and your relationship with Nelson, which is just so... Uh, intimate and mm-hmm. so loving while in a country mm-hmm. like Uganda, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk about Uganda. I mean, a lot of us here in the United States know of Uganda as it relates to the LGBTQI community is to be this very, very, very dangerous, um, you know, atmosphere for LGBTQI people. And so I wanted to start by talking about the fact that when you started this documentary, you and Nelson had just met and, and were in a relationship for, for six months. Um, you know, the, the relationship has been the core, which is demonstrated in the documentary. It's just been the core of your strength, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've known Nelson since high school um, in 2004 when we met. Um, So we've been together for close to um, 11 years or something like that. Um, Initially, um, we... We knew each other as friends, and it was difficult to openly express our affection towards each other. Um, and now as his secret affection. He was battling with, um, dealing with, um, dating a person who identified as a transgender person, yet he identified as, as a straight man. And the backlash that um, straight men get, heterosexual men get when they are dating transgender people. But even for myself at that time, I didn't even know I was transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time, the only times I knew to define myself was either gay or straight. It was and for gender, it was male or female. I didn't have that term transgender to use to define myself. But I knew that whatever I was dealing with with my identity went beyond sexuality. But I didn't know what to call it. So it was very hard initially when we had mate and for that early couple of couple of years mm-hmm. to to date openly yeah mm-hmm. when did you when did you discover that there was a term for how you identified and I think for some transgender individuals here in the United States I mean you know it was as simple as googling and then for some it was because they had access to resources what about for you uh, and especially you know doing going through your transition in Uganda I guess it was because I I started participating actively in the LGBTIQ movement here, and I made initially I thought I was alone because growing up um, I didn't know I didn't know any people who identified as gay. Um, in high school, I knew I was abused by by men, boys, but they identified as as straight. So I didn't know anyone who openly identified as gay or transgender or anything like that. But when I went to university and I went away from home, because the other part of my life was basically day school, so I would have to go home all the time. Mm-hmm. But in my university, um, when I went for my university studies, and I actually went from home, and this gave me time to discover myself, to ponder hard, and to just know who I am um, without my parents and my family telling me who I ought to be. And that's when I discovered other people who identified as gay and bisexual, and a few people who identified as transgender. And I also Googled, yeah, and I went on to meet transgender people on forums elsewhere. And through my activism, I also traveled wide to represent the organization that I used to work for called Trans Support Initiative Uganda that worked with the trans intersex and uh, the trans and intersex community. And... Mm-hmm. I met other trans people um, outside Africa, outside Uganda and outside Africa, and we talked 
for long about their journey, um, discovering themselves and seeking um, hormone replacement therapy or surgeries and what that felt like and how to go about it in a continent that doesn't have healthcare for trans people. And I guess that's when I fully realized one and accepted um, that I'm a transgender person and Mm-hmm. Just know that it would be a hard part, but how would I deal with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I love about the the documentary is that it's not uh, all focused on you as a transgender woman. It, it also beautifully, um, you know, showed us the strong connection and 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 love between you and Nelson. Um, talk to us about you know just kind of the meaning of that and your relationship and in in in. in you know, it's like at one point in the documentary when you were outed by the tabloids um, Mm -hmm. and being a homosexual, they they were so scared for their their lives that they had abandoned you. But Nelson, you know, stayed with you and and supported you. Um, Yeah, talk talk to us about the the meaning of that and and how much um, that has been a part of your journey. Nelson is my anchor. Um, he's done so much for me, and we've been through so much together for so long that I can't begin to explain what our connection is like. But if there's anything like a soul connection, it's us because he knew me before I was transgender, and even before we had a time for it, he used to refer me by the female pronoun. And I remember in high school, they used to bully him for that because he used to call me by the female pronoun. And he didn't know that I'm transgender and I didn't even know it as well. And he wasn't calling me she because he wanted to be offensive to me, but that's what he knew me as. Um, And I didn't even know I was transgender. And while so many other people were bullying him to talk to me, we were fast friends. And then we started dating. And for long, even when he was dealing with his own battles of trying to understand what he felt towards me, he was still gentle about it. Mm. Um, and it's hard, you know. I remember a time in about two, years, two or three years ago when, I, when we came out openly and told my mom that Nelson and I were dating and he's my boyfriend and he might be my fiancé and husband. She asked me something. I was so what's wrong with Nelson? I know that you are transgender, but what is wrong with Nelson? Because she figured um, someone would have to have an issue or a problem, which which is what she referred to being transgender as back then, to actually date a transgender person in Uganda. So she thought that maybe he had a fetish for transgender people mm-hmm. or he was queer in some way. But no, before me, he used to treat um, cisgendered women, he just felt this connection towards me that went beyond all the levels of gender identity and sexuality, and which just ran away with it. It was hard for him. There was apathy that mm-hmm. he experienced and that from society, and that's something that's never talked about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the ridicule that cisgendered heterosexual men feel when they date trans people um, because their masculinity and their sexuality is put in question and it's hard for them to actually stand for these people and say that this is who I'm dating and I love them. And oftentimes they are forced to saying that no, it's just a fetish or uh, just experimenting or playing around. But he stood there with me and we went through so much crap um, when I was outed in the tabloids and 
some of my mm-hmm. family members decided not to ever talk to me again for reasons I understood because the law, the Anti-Homosexuality Act actually say that if you are for an aiding and abating mm-hmm. a homosexual person, then you would also be imprisoned. Right. He stayed with me straight. Um, I fled from Uganda to Nairobi on my way to the airport. I was on a bicycle. Um, I rode a bicycle to the airport, and it was raining, and it was raining hard, and I was crying, and I didn't come with him. And this was the first time I never had him in my life, and it was so scary. Yeah. But even before he came to join me in Kenya, he um, he told me to be strong. He used mm-hmm. to call me every day to tell me to be strong. And finally, after a month or two, he joined me, and we were together. He lost his job mm. because what? of that paper that actually came out. But he was willing to come and join me, which meant that he was he wasn't able to practice medicine in Kenya or anything. So he didn't have a job for so long, but he was willing to just stay with me. Mm-hmm. And that was so special for me. That is. That is so remarkable and just a, a great love story. And I'm so happy that you both have each other. You mentioned the yeah. anti uh, gay bill that Uganda had tried to pass, um in which it, it, it failed um, due to a technicality yeah. because the members of par- parliament did not reach quorum um, and, and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, and so thank God that that, that happened. But the, yeah. what it's done with the country and the attitudes about LGBTQI people has made it very dangerous for for LGBT um, people. So my question to you is that, you know, this this documentary and to be very public about your transition was there ever a time that you felt that it may have been too scary to follow through with the production, or do you feel um, that this is absolutely, you know, necessary necessary to put the information out there? Um, even from the so the the first time we wanted to do this documentary, it was to um, basically because um, there's a lot of there's a huge information void when it comes to transgender persons in my country, and this is because there's a huge conflation. Um, between sexuality and gender when it comes to sexual minorities and transgender people. Um, most people who are in fact transgender are seen as gay people because they've never had surgeries and they're mm-hmm. not on hormones or anything because they can't accept that. So most people see them as a stereotypical gay person, and they are targeted as such uh, because they can't pass, and I don't like using that term, but it's because they can't pass, so they are seen as these queer people who are gay and they're just unapologetically so. Um, so with the movie, we hoped that one, um, to really bring out this other diversity of Ugandans that has never been talked about, of gender that has never been talked about, for people to appreciate and understand gender beyond the binary, one. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to draw a clear line between Sexuality and gender as being two distinct things when talking about sexual minorities and and, and and transgender and intersex people. Because it was very important for us to see that people understand what it means to be transgender. That's not a choice. That's like being gay with a choice. Um, and for people to appreciate what transgender people go through. But moving beyond that, to unsexualize the whole narrative and not make it one of victimhood, but one of urgency, a positive story about love, um, to help people understand that 
I don't know. But yeah, no, I totally. We have been yeah. lost as a human race by right. labeling love with all these labels that then are barriers to the human experience of affection and love and connecting, and that's what the story is all about. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it is such a beautiful, incredible documentary. I love this so much. Um, we're going to take you. a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue our discussion, and then I want to conclude by talking about just kind of your advocacy going forward. So stay with us, okay? All right. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Our special guest is Cleopatra Kambugu. She's with the Pearl of Africa, a documentary um, that follows Cleo and her partner Nelson as she transitions in Uganda. Cleo, I wanted to um, continue and talk about, you know, the anti-LGBT atmosphere in Uganda. Uh, You mentioned um, gender and gender expression and how that's not completely understood in a country like Uganda. I had a question about just kind of like what were your thoughts um, in in terms of gender, gender expression before, I would say, you know, I don't know, colonization or like Western influence. I. My personal feelings is that because of Western influence, um, that has definitely impacted the people of Uganda and their views mm-hmm. on sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, unfortunately, um, 
our civilization didn't do a good job with documenting um, our stories. Most of it is in pictures. Um, there's not so much literature out there, and no one has really tried to decode um, um, the history of my culture, my personal culture, which is Batoro in Uganda, in as far as gender and sexuality is concerned. But also I know that my culture is very silent when it comes to sexuality and gender. But if I go by the language, we have very deep affirmative words of people who are who are identified by the agenda beyond the binary, something to the effect of a two-spirited person. Um, we do have that, and they are revered as people who are... Uh, Sort of like deity like and, mm-hmm. and they are worshipped mm-hmm. and but with that with with the colonization and with with the whole Christian narrative, all that's been lost um, and I guess that that history has been lost and while in the past it was not such a huge issue for someone to to be either be assigned male at birth and present as female right now it is um I don't know if it's it could be the Christianity, but it, it could also be one of the backlash of a very um, strong um, queer movement that came out, uh, which made people very um, aggressive towards same-sex love back home, mm-hmm. um, because it, it spoke strongly about sexuality, that which is something we don't talk about openly. And the whole conflation, the whole conflation and huge information for it about people who are transgender. But I know that even before that moment, there's a very huge, um, deep language around people who whose gender goes beyond the binary. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move on to, you know, the, the happier ending of the, the documentary. I mean... Um, you're now living in Kampala and you've had, you know, gender reassignment surgery. I mean, how are things today? Um, better. Yeah. <laughs> better than before. One of the things I was trying to do was be able to go out and swim um, and wear a bikini and not be worried about stuff. Um, mm. And that I was able to do. We were able to take a trip down to Mombasa with Nelson and we had a very brief romantic vacation in Mombasa, which is on the coastal area of Kenya, where we stay. And it was just lovely being free in the air and mm. not worried about stuff. Um, but still, I'm still battling with being able to change my documents because my passport still reads mail, my academic papers still read mail. And I can't use them. They are practically obsolete for my academic papers, for example, because they read mail. And when people see me, I'm a different gender, right? Um, so even before I came to Toronto, where I am right now for the premier, I submitted my papers to uh, to the uh, Minister of Registration to see if we can be able to change that. And I'm, I'll be expecting a review in two weeks. And how is Nelson um, doing? And, uh, you know, marriage uh, around the corner? Or? I don't know. I'll be <laughs> to hear from him. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I did put you I in the spotlight. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and touch on that, you know, and, um, and as far as, like, your hopes, you know, as far uh, the future 
in terms mm-hmm. of Uganda. I, know, I mentioned earlier that the bill uh, did not pass on a technicality, but it, some time has gone by. I'm, I'm hoping and wishing to hear that things are getting a little bit better for LGBTQI people. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Um, I hope so, too. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping things will be getting better soon. Um, I hope with the Pan of Africa that uh, there will be a shaping of the narrative and shaping of discussions around sexuality and gender. Um, that's basically my thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I want to say thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for sharing the Pearl of Africa with us. I think, like I said, it's groundbreaking and it's uh, it's just so important. But also for people to see the uh, you know authentic love between you and Nelson. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? Love. Thank you. Thank you, Cleo. Thanks for having me today. Make sure you support the documentary, The Pearl of Africa. Uh, I think you can uh, look for it online. I know that they are going to be a part of some film festivals. Um, It's just incredible to kind of think about what someone can do just by providing a voice and a platform and changing people's hearts and minds. And Cleo's doing that in Uganda. And I keep talking about Uganda because... Um, and for those of you who don't know or don't remember, I mean, Uganda had tried to pass a bill called the anti-gay bill, or at one point it was called Kill the Gays Bill. It was introduced by a gentleman by the name of David Bahati. He'd been on, you know, the Rachel Maddow show. And this guy literally was saying that they should pass this bill that would that would incriminate LGBTQI people and possibly throw them in jail for the rest of their lives uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're demons or they're coming to recruit your kids and make them gay and all this stuff. And it was like a lot of the words that we hear from the evangelical Christians here in this country who are also anti-gay. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's an example of how lies are spread and then people start believing in it. And then, you know, the worst part is, someone like Scott Lively, who's an anti-gay pastor that is part responsible, in my opinion, um, for these anti-gay attitudes in Uganda, because he was the one who traveled to Uganda in the first place to preach, uh, you know, anti-gay values. And he's currently being sued uh, by the sexual minorities of Uganda. Um, You know, do you, you look at like an individual who goes and shamelessly does something like this and then chaos ensues and then you have hate and then you have anger and then you have violence and you have murders of LGBTQI people in a, in, in a country like Uganda. And, and then, you know, who's responsible for that? Who's the res- who's responsible for the loss of lives of innocent people? And then who's responsible for spreading the lies that impacts pe- you know, people's understanding of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and all these things that are human issues, by the way, people. And although that you can argue with me that God said this and in Leviticus, blah, 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 verse this, that and that, that, you know, LGBTQI people deserve the, the you know, the most extreme punishment. I think at the end of the day, every human being can get behind and, and can decipher for themselves what is hate and, and what, is, what is not acceptable. And at the end of the day, hate is hate, people. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Don't go away. When we come back, another film, The Watermelon Woman, and a conversation with filmmaker Cheryl Dunier.
You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at facebook.com slash progressive voices. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and. I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets, I don't think I'm that mysterious, you know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life, I like pretty simple things, uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage, uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14 year old girl and a 10 year old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this beautiful Monday. And uh, it is already May, May 2nd. I should uh, throw a shout out to my little sister, Janet. It's her birthday. And when I say little, she's pretty little. She's like all of five feet, I think. But uh, we're no longer two, three, four years old, we're in our 30s, so I don't think she'd appreciate it if I kept calling her my little sister. Anyway, happy birthday, Janet. Our next guest uh, is Cheryl Dunier, and this is an interview that I did uh, right before the San Francisco International Film Festival that just happened this past weekend. Um, it was an awesome, awesome reason to interview Cheryl because it was also the 20th anniversary of her feature film, The Watermelon Woman. And, you know, what's incredible about this is that uh, we're also celebrating the re-release of The Watermelon Woman. It's been updated. Uh, the film, when it was released in 1996, was considered the first film to be directed and written by an uh, out black lesbian. So here's the interview with Cheryl. 
special guest today and uh, a very awesome interview. I've waited quite a long time actually to speak to this filmmaker and um, and uh, more about her work, but it just so happens that we were able to meet in, in very special circumstances. <laughs> We've actually have gotten to know each other as friends, colleagues, and uh, so now let's, uh, let's welcome filmmaker, director, professor Cheryl Dunier to the program. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime, Michelle. Um, yeah, so I was just saying, you know, I, I obviously had been turned on to your work before actually meeting you, and then it, it, it just was so special to me that I got to meet you, um, and and kind of now we're getting to know each other on a, on a right? personal level. Um, but congratulations on the re-release of your first feature film, uh, The Watermelon Woman. That is so, so cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I mean, how often do you get to celebrate um, you know, something, one of your firsts, but then also something that's a first for so many other people, filmmakers, filmmakers of color, queer women of color, just lives to acknowledge the existence of people's lives. So that's a really great thing for me. It's like I put something out there that um, is about putting yourself out there, and uh, so many people have, you know, had experiences with, her, I'll even call it, because now she's 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, so the film is 20 years old, as as you had just mentioned. And um, let's talk about the film very quickly, The Watermelon Woman. Some of us, it's new to us. Some of us know or have seen it. Uh, but pr- pretty much, as you know, I understand, it is the first film, really. So this was released in 1996. First film made, uh, directed, written, by an out black lesbian. Am I saying that correctly? This is true, but of course there are a few foremothers in um, feature work, but not feature narrative work. So when you get up there with uh, putting images out there, there's a you know there's always a distinguished leg- legacy. Michelle Parkerson, who was actually a mentor of mine um, when I was a student at Temple University, is a documentary filmmaker, and she made a wonderful documentary about Audrey Lorde. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Ada Griffin, and uh, when I when I saw what you could do, and how you could storytell with truth, and how truth is so connected to fiction, that's what really inspired me to make the Watermelon Woman. That 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 ability to uncover a uh, path, and uh, you know, I don't I don't know if you're you know people who haven't seen the film, it's a path that does or doesn't exist, but one young woman, Carol, twenty years ago, and that's the name of the character has to tell and investigate that story. So it, it is a first, and, and it, it's so great that it's a, you know, a life that's uncovered in birth in that first telling. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this obviously, it's, it's so funny because um, it was kind of backwards for me before seeing Watermelon Woman. I've gotten to know you personally. So now seeing the film, it's almost uh, as if, well, it felt very autobiographical to me. Like it felt like, you know, this was pretty much a page out of your own life. Um, talk a little bit about that and kind of, you know, the, the elements or the themes that really touched on you in real life and then parts of it that uh, were made up. Yeah. Um, so the watermelon woman definitely has that level of autobiography because so much of my life as a filmmaker, my personal is my political is the world that I storytell about. So I thought it would really be cool. And because I couldn't really have a super fantabulous cast, and no, you know, whatever, because I really wanted to, um, play with this 
we're going to break the rules, but I didn't even know that then. Um, what's to highlight and spotlight my community? So my community, of course, always goes back to mom, and I actually include my real mom, who's then passed away, <laughs> Irene Dunye, in the film. As a variety of others, Bay Area people, Brian Freeman from Homo Afro Toshi Reagan, who plays um, right now uh, as a, she's a musician, she's a, a, magician, a musician in The Watermelon Woman. Um, Camille Paglia's in the film, uh, somebody I knew in Philly. So uh, Sarah Shulman, writer, um, just, David, uh, just David Rakoff, who was a, a friend of mine, too, who passed away also. Ira Jeffries. I mean, the film just went for me as a way to highlight um, my community uh, of cultural producers. And so you filmmakers, I see, I, I understand, really do this in storytelling. They might do it in documentary, but they don't do it in, in, in weaving that into to a narrative of a film. So um, I, 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 and who else is going to put spotlights on ourselves but ourselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, you know, just some of the, the key central messages. I mean, obviously I picked up a whole lot, even though, you know, it's 20 years later, it seems like a lot of what um, was present in the film, the watermelon woman and your quest, you know, to, find out more information um, about this actress, you know, who was an actress in the thirties who were given a lot, you know, in kind of talking about the mammy roles and, uh, and then come to find out, you know, she is also lesbian. Um, And then, you know, you also cover racial issues. Let's just put it this way. Intersectionality, which has become like a, 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 like a, a, you know, something as fancy as a fancy hors d'oeuvre word. (laughs) And (laughs) I say it like that because people kind of pick and choose when they want to use it. And it's become so popular now. But, you know, these, the the topics that you covered, you know, uh, while it may seem like it's like the flavor of the week today, I, I, I mean, that, that, that has always kind of been in discussion even 20 years ago. Yeah, thanks for acknowledging that. Yeah, I, um, Michelle, I didn't realize what I was doing then, but I was feeling it. And I think when we have feelings, we need to express them. So um, I was, you know, a young, out of uh, film school. I wasn't at film school. I was at art school where I got my MFA at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And, you know, making my path up to New York, which was bursting with so much. It was bursting with um, act up activists, uh, you know, Queer Nation, you know, uh, definitely a dyke action machine, like all these lesbians and gay people fighting for our lives on one hand in the street, um, and then on the other hand, you get the birth of queer cinema. The mm-hmm. Tom Kalins, uh, Jenny Living- Livingston, Christine Bichon producing all this work. Um, uh, you know, so you, you're starting to see these images come out there, but there weren't images that were including folks that looked like me, mm-hmm. you know, or that had that sort of bent. And so um, I realized, and, and just used this moment and this looking to, um, you know, tell this story and put myself in the picture um, and put myself, all myself, because I think that's what you're talking about, intersectionality, is that we are plural people and our histories are plural. So the watermelon woman really weaves this telling, and we know it's but it wasn't, you know, documented at this time that black lesbians existed in, 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 in so many fields but were never being able to be documented. So I do what the, the 
know, what we've all wanted to do is just, um, you know, even even I'll say I did a little Beyonce lemonade. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, before there was lemonade, right. I, uh, you know, play with that and, and, and use photography as well as narrative filmmaking to, um, and documentary to, to, to make this happen because mm-hmm. we need it. And I, I guess it really opened the door for, sad to say, um, a lot of independent um, work in, in sort of short format but it doesn't really kick off until um, he Reese makes Pariah about 10 years after mine that we get the second, maybe even 12, the second African-American lesbian feature film. And it, it shocks me every day when I think about how few black women, lesbian, queer, whatever we want to call ourselves, mm-hmm. um, directors get to, you know, pull the and get into the zone to make their feature films or allow themselves to do it. So I really feel like this film is uh, a testament to uh, saying that you're allowed to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I I don't remember what I was doing in 1996. Um, (laughs) But uh, when when you uh, released this film, I mean, and kind of just like looking back, do you remember, you know, what the response was like um, then? Because now it's it's celebrated and, and the conversation of even something like interracial relationships, um, you know, that's a whole new different discussion today than, than it may have been 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that one. Um, I realized I, at that moment had done something that not only queer filmmaking was doing at the time, but filmmaking, you know, taking a risk with regular filmmaking and, storytelling and sort of the formal aspects of storytelling that people weren't doing, you know, breaking the narrative down, using community, and um, integrating photography, a whole other art form, into the storytelling. So I felt sort of around that time that I was doing a first. And why I felt that is because outside of the kind of queer, you know, tick, tick, you know, chitlin circuit, as we might call it, mm-hmm. the, the lesbian gay film festival circuit in, in our world that we I'm so proud that we have. Um, this film started to show at regular A-level film festivals, Taipei Golden Horse, um, the Ber- Berlin Film Festival where I won the Teddy Award for the film. Um, you know, it just started showing globally. And when once that happens, you realize, hey, I'm I'm on to something. I the world this this sort of filmmaking, regardless of it's very specific, is is touching a lot of people outside of of um, who I am. So uh, that's when I, I realized I was on to something. And, and as we know today, 20 years later, um, it's still, you know, it's touching people in, in different generations now. Absolutely. Um, some uh, part, parts of it, you know, I get, I don't know if sad's the right word, but it definitely made me so, uh, so much more aware of the fact that, you know, well, a lot of progress has been made within the LGBTQ movement. We're still, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. dealing with uh, some of the same issues um, that you point out in Watermelon Woman. I-, I wanted to touch briefly on the fact that the film had a little bit of controversy. I was I was surprised to read that the controversy, uh, <laughs> you know, surrounded that very brief but beautiful sex scene, um, uh, you know, in Watermelon Woman with Cheryl hooking up with with Diana for the first time. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Why it was sure. controversial? Definitely. No. Um, you're addressing uh, in the film, Guinevere Turner plays Diana, my love interest, who, you know, 
hot button topic today, how do people love from different, you know, backgrounds. Um, so I brought that right into the film and I included the hookup scene. Um, not to say that there were many, but there's you know, one of many in the lives of characters, but <laughs> definitely. But that scene, because I received a National Endowment of the Arts grant, um, and because the Republicans who were in Congress at the time wanted to get rid of this, you know, wonderful government support of the arts and, and promotion of the arts, that they, they singled out this project and, and really ripped it and, and pulled it uh, into the congressional um, debate around what is art. And uh, Peter, Peter Hoekstra of Michigan, Republican, yeah. stood up on the floor and said, this is pornography and we want to defund the NEA, $31,500, which is the, the sum of my grant for, for its support of what's pornographic. And um, I'm so glad that, you know, and this is when you know where we are Americans and you know, even what's happening today, um, we get uh, people having their voice, that's all I have to say, um, that Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat from Texas, stood up and said, no, no, let's talk about art, you know, this is a bigger question here, art, art is plural and it has many um, audiences in the film, while you're pulling that one scene, this film uncovers a black film history about women that that is never told so you you know let's 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 talk about this and let's take this back so i you know the film did bring up this discussion about what is what is art and and who's allowed to make art and what art art is about and i i never would have thought that you know my little film really um you know cracked open something and actually the nea doesn't offer that form of support anymore. I'm not going to say that I brought that down, but definitely the NEA got sort of reorganized and reassessed. Mm. Um, but it, it's interesting. And and the other flip side of this is I was never physically rep- representing myself, which I think is so interesting about this film about invisibility. Um, many wonderful sort of folks in Hollywood and, um, you know, in, in Congress sort of stood up for me, but I never had to stand up for myself, which I think is Interesting, problematic, good, bad, you know, but it's mm-hmm. to note that, um, you know, here here I am still being represented by, like, an Alec Baldwin was, you know, uh, was fighting for me, and, you know, I, I, I didn't really say much. Mm-hmm. So that, that, to me, is, is ironic. <laughs> um, gosh, wow. What, what an incredible story to attach to this, uh, this film, your first feature film. And, I mean, honestly, the only thing... The only thing that, you know, I, I guess you could say was cringeworthy in terms of the sex scene was the, the for me personally, I was like, oh, shoot, I think I'm going to see Cheryl naked. <laughs> but it was it was super beautiful. I mean, you compare it to, you know, fast forward to the L word in the early 2000s. I mean, <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah, no, I mean, it's again, it's. um I think it goes back to looking at some of the, the feature films that I had seen about lesbianism, those images where I was trying to find, you know, what my body and what, how, you know, how many was the form. We learned so much from filmmaking that um, I think mine was personal best. Maybe I saw that. And, mm-hmm. you know, seeing it on the screen and as a young person, you're like, wow, hold it. You know, these two women or, or, um, Desert Hearts is another one that has a beautiful scene of, of women um, engaging and, and, and lovemaking. So um, I really wanted, to, I thought it was really important to include a, a lovemaking scene. 
mm-hmm. um, with a brown body, which you never get to see um, at all in a, in a very beautiful light. And Michelle Crenshaw, our, our cinematographer, really took extra time to um, create with me, um, you know, some beautiful coverage of that. So if you want to come out and see the film again, definitely <laughs> make sure you, you're, you're paying attention to the, 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 the restoration around uh, the colors and the tones. I mean, it's a beautiful, warm scene. And, oh. you know, we did some great restoration around. That's awesome. That back, taking off the scratchy, scratchy, and, <laughs> and the, the, the color is, is beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm going to wind down here because I know uh, you've got limited time. Congrats again. Yeah. And just to let everyone know, the San Francisco International Film Festival is uh, releasing, I should say, the re-release of The Watermelon Woman. It will be playing this Sunday at the Castro Theater at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can get your tickets at uh, SF. IS.org. Yep. I'm sorry, SS. Also, oh, go ahead, Cheryl. No, I was going to say, don't forget, to, um, there's also a wonderful conversation that we're going to have about black queerness within the context of, of, of queer film. So Darius Bose, the wonderful, um, I would call him a black academic, mm-hmm. um, is going to be up there afterwards having this great conversation. We're going to definitely get dig deep into um, some of these issues. That is awesome because I, I mean, I, I had so many more questions for you and <laughs> time talking right. about your work can just go on and on and on. And again, I'm going to give the website sffs.org for tickets. Uh, last question for you before we let you go, Cheryl, um, just kind of, you know, in wrapping up this this word identity. I mean, obviously, the, the your first feature film um, is a lot. Uh, there about you and then now 20 years later what are your thoughts about uh you know the black queer black lesbian identity as presented in today's time um you know changes is it are we are we getting somewhere i kind of had mentioned to you earlier that i felt kind of sad that we're still dealing with some of these issues and it feels like we're just uncovering them but i'd love to hear from you you know, I feel like with, with, with media, the way it's going, we're actually able to see more identities plural. Mm. And I feel like my film is, is, you know, The Watermelon Woman was definitely my expression around, again, the intersection of my identities plural and trying to make them whole in one. Um, but right now we're able to see that splinter off into some really fabulous filmmaking, narrative short, documentary, um, even media work in, in new media, web, hopefully more games. Um, where people are, are able to play with this concept of identity plural. So um, I think the, 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 the hope is that these new identities or these new expression of identities within the queer spectrum get to have their, 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 their cake and eat it too and, and make images and, and, and get folks out there to the theaters. We have the Trans Fest now. We have so many film festivals that, that are expressions of, of who we are and how we live, or live our lives. And if you don't see it, make it up yourself. It's a great point. That's awesome. Hey, Cheryl, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. No problem. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye now. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. 
That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life. A special message by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this incredible Monday. I'm so happy and so thankful that we're able to share with you uh, two films that are very, very important to the LGBTQI community. One film touching on uh, pretty much, you know, the first transgender female in, in Uganda. And I say first as in the first story told. Um, so make sure you support the film. And then, of course, Cheryl Dunye, who continues to be an incredible voice for LGBTQI people here in the Bay Area, but also continues to make some incredible films. We're going to end the show with a good friend of the program. If you have followed um, just kind of my work since like 2005, you would be familiar with our next guest who's going to help us end the show. Um, uh, she's better known as Sima the Inclusionist. So let's welcome back Sima. Sima! It's so great to have you back. You know, it's wonderful to be back here, Michelle. Great to see you. Yeah, and you know, uh, I the show has definitely evolved from different formats. It used to be a ton of uh, segment hosts who would contribute their work, and then um, I decided that we wanted to focus on the interviews. And now I think it's appropriate to reintroduce Sima back. She does uh, very important work in the diversity and inclusion space. Um, especially with everything that's happening in this country as we talk about race, gender, sexuality, you know, sex and all that stuff. So everyone, here's Sima, the inclusionist. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist. Today I want to talk about the Harriet Tubman $20 bill. I applaud the decision to put Harriet Tubman, fugitive slave, conductor of the Underground Railroad, who helped hundreds of slaves escape to freedom, and my childhood hero on the face of the $20 bill. Not everyone agrees. According to Donald Trump, she was a great person, but putting her on the $20 bill is just about political correctness, whatever that means. Political correctness seems to be the term that people like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity use to shut down the conversation when the issue of race discrimination, or offensive language towards other groups come up. I welcome this controversy because it inspires controversy. I welcome this controversy because it inspires conversation, learning, and awareness of history, heroes, and acts of heroism that we need in our country. I have to confess, though, until this decision, I paid little attention to who was on the $20 bill. And I have no doubt that the same is true for the naysayers who say they are devastated that Andrew Jackson's face will no longer grace the front of these bills. I didn't even know he was on the $20 bill. So why was Harriet Tubman my childhood hero? As a young nine-year-old Jewish kid in the Bronx, I grew up around people who had survived the concentration camps, genocide, and enslavement in Nazi Germany. I saw the numbers that the Nazis had branded on their, I saw the numbers that the Nazis had branded on these people's wrists, like the slave owners did to black people on the plantations. I also heard about the six million Jews who never made it to freedom, but who perished in gas chambers, burned alive, and murdered at whim. 
Harriet Tubman reminded me of the stories I heard of brave people who helped Jews escape the camps or who hid them when the Nazis went searching house to house. I also knew the story of Moses, who had freed the Jewish slaves in Egypt. And when I read the story of Harriet Tubman, who the slaves referred to as their Moses, I identified and I idolized. She was the topic of numerous school book reports and presentations. And when we had to say who we wanted to meet, living or dead, I always said Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was one of my inspirations for marching for integration and joining the civil rights movement. As I read the online comments by people who object, I read hate, I read fear, and I read lack of information. I'd like to talk to some of these people who are afraid and who lack information, because, and also some of the outcry is so nonsensical, there's no way I can even respond. Like, to anyone 16 who writes, Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill equals white genocide, or to the person who says she only helped black people, I would say, Harriet Tubman is not the downfall of the white race. In fact, she was the only woman and only black conductor of the Underground Railroad. The rest were white men who understood that the institutions of slavery were destructive to everyone of every color. And the reality is, Andrew Jackson, he only did things for white people. So to the person who, also to the person who wrote that Harriet Tubman was a thief because slavery was legal and she was stealing property, you really need to go back to the past. You'd be a lot happier there. And to people who say, we've always had Andrew Jackson on the bill, why should we change? That's the same thing people have said to me in organizations. We've always recruited from the same schools. Why should we change? We've never had a woman in that position. We've never had a person of color, woman, Muslim, Jew, etc., in our club. Tradition can be good. It can bring people together but it can also exclude people. It can continue discrimination and it can stop communities from progressing. I say, keep the traditions that move us forward or build our human community. Eliminate the traditions that are detrimental and harmful and create new traditions that bring people together. So if you have any questions, have conversations with people who are different than you. Find out who Harriet Tubman was and why she's important to our history as a nation and to the history of black people who were enslaved. We can't change history, but we can honor the people in history who changed the future and help make the present what it is today while one group is not the property of another. And if you don't want your Harriet Tubman $20 bills, well, I'll trade your five Tubmans for one slave-owning Jackson. Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, out. <laughs> wow. Wow, Sima. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say, well, I'll take all your Harriet Tub uh, Tubmans. Tubmans. I will. But if I have any Jacksons, you give me five Tubbins and I'll I'll take I'll give you one Jackson. <laughs> Besides which, you know what? He's going to be on the back of the bill. So he's yeah. not even like he's being eliminated. That doesn't make any sense. Why? I mean, if you're going to take him off, take him off. Yeah, I have no idea what's going Who on. Who do we talk to about that? I don't know. Write a letter to your congressman. So write a letter to your congressman. Whether they read it or not, I don't know. Well, okay. So, you know, in all honesty, um, just kind of looking at this, right, there are so many symbols of racism that still exist here in this country. And for a lot of people, you know, who grew up here, you don't see it. It's right. just in you and you kind of almost ignore it. And what do we call that? That's what passive racism or I, I call it institutionalized it's racism. Institutional racism or you could call it everyday, ra everyday racism. Yes. 
So anyway, thank you so much for coming back on the show. What an important segment. We're going to be talking about race issues, diversity, and of course, inclusionary ideas and concepts with our inclusionist, Simon Lieberman. So make sure you tune in Monday through Thursday here on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. Thank you, Sima. Thank you. 